0: The drama that people attach to some things, I was able to let go of because there was no drama that was going to be as impactful as what I had just gone through, losing my daughter.
1: Shortly after Leah died, and when I say shortly, it was probably about a week, I heard two things. One was losing Leah is too high a price to pay to not live the life I was meant to live. And the second is that everything I had done up until that point had prepared me for what was coming next. So while there were times when I couldn't function, I didn't want to function, I didn't know how I was going to get from one moment to the next, those two things just just kept urging me forward.
2: Ms. Leah Therese Leffler, 17, of Frederick, Maryland, died Wednesday, November 8, 2000, at Washington County Hospital from injuries sustained in a vehicle accident. Born April 28, 1983, in Chicago, Illinois, she was the daughter of Daniel Bernard and Nancy Ellen Miller Leffler. She was a senior at Middletown High School and was a member of Holy Family Catholic Community Church. In addition to her parents, she is survived by one brother, Peter Daniel Leffler, paternal grandmother Dolores Carter, maternal grandfather Richard Miller and wife Ellie, aunts and uncles Michael Miller and wife Karen, Julianne Mangione, James Leffler, and cousins Richard Miller, Kristen Miller, Gianna Mangione, Vincent Leffler, and Jordan Leffler. The family will receive friends at Donald B. Thompson Funeral Home on Sunday, November 12th. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to the Leah Therese Leffler Memorial Fund. That was Leah's obituary. But on this podcast from a Renaissance Funeral Home in Raleigh, North Carolina, we go beyond the obituary to get a better sense of who this person was. Who was Leah? What were some of the stories that define her? We'll hear from some of the people who loved her because she was so much more than a one-page obituary. I'm your host, Jason Gilligan, and on today's show, I talked to Leah's parents, Dan and Nancy, to get a sense of what Leah was like And we could hear some of the stories that stick out in their minds so vividly even when her death was over 18 years ago. And even though this story is about Leah, it's about grieving as well. Some say that the loss of a child is the worst pain that anybody can endure and Dan and Nancy talk about their grief journey, which has been a challenge in so many ways, and how they now help others who are experiencing this type of pain. We start with Nancy and Dan describing what Leah was like as a child. Here's Nancy.
1: Well, as as a baby, she was a she was she was a second child, and I think we were a lot more comfortable, or relaxed with her. And as a baby, she was she was fairly easy. She was always the light of everybody's life when she walked into a room. From the time she was. A baby. She was. Um, she lit up the room. She always connected with people, even as a baby. But she was always very, very intense all the way through her short life. She was always really, really intense. She was. Well, she was very independent. The way that I've come to see it, and this is only in retrospect, is she, at some level, her soul knew she was only going to be here for a short period of time. So she had to get as much living in as possible. So she was always wanting to be independent and intentional. In, intentional, she, yeah. She was. Um, she was. I don't know what. How would you describe it?
0: Um, stubborn. <laughs> yeah, she
1: definitely was. She was definitely stubborn. She
0: didn't speak until she could speak in sentences.
1: You knew we knew she understood everything because we would say something to her, and we we could tell she comprehended it. But she would not speak because she could point to something and go Uh eh, and we'd get it for her. She but all,
0: when she started talking, it wasn't sentences. It was it was really funny. She knew her own mind, and she was you know kind of determined to follow what she thought was the right path, whether that was saving uh, a turtle that had crawled out across the street. And she stopped the car in the middle of a rainstorm with her girlfriend to try to get this turtle off to the side of the road. And then came home dripping wet, giggling like mad because she had saved the turtle.
1: One of my favorite stories from when she was five years old, she always wanted to take ballet classes. So I signed her up for ballet classes and she wore a leotard. Well, one day I was going to an exercise class and I put on my, my leotard, but she said to me, are you going to wear your Nancy toad? Because she wore a leotard, so she just figured that I wore a Nancy toad. And that was just, she was completely serious in this little five-year-old self. So that, that, that tells you a little bit about her comprehension at, at such a young
0: age. Another story that comes to mind was uh, uh, the year that we got her a bicycle for for Christmas.
1: She was was five again.
0: We got the bike and uh, I went out and I made sure that I had training wheels for it. And uh, so she was anxious to to get out and and give it a whirl. I was behind her holding the seat, trying to help her establish her balance. And she just kept going, no, no. (laughs) And, And before I knew it, off she was. Pedaling down the street, and I was running to, to, to catch her. Needless to say, her brother, who was a couple years older than her and had never really mastered his bicycle, when he saw her example, it wasn't long before he was riding his bike. And uh, well,
1: she asked you to take the training wheels off after one trip to the corner and back. She just got on and, and wrote it like yeah, that.
0: Immediately. She was she was uh, athletically inclined yeah. and...
1: Uh... Took gymnastics. Oh, here is this is a great story. When she was in, I think, fifth grade, we had recently moved from Chicago to Maryland, and she didn't want to move because all her friends were back in Chicago. At the new school, she was still very independent and was starting to make friends, but was just trying to find her place, and she came home one day, and in physical education, she had climbed the rope faster and more times than anybody, including all the boys, in, in the entire class. And she came down, and she said, everybody here are wimps, I, I'm stronger than everybody else, and um, I'm sure if her friends heard that now that they would laugh, because... <laughs> Eventually, she did make some very good friends yeah. in
0: Maryland. No, no lack of
2: confidence in that yeah. girl. <laughs> yeah. Peter's about two and a half years older. Mm-hmm. Um, how did they get along growing up?
1: Uh, they fought like typical brothers and sisters, but we've found out since then that they pretended to fight when we were looking and then behind when we weren't looking, they would um, just laugh at us. So they weren't really, they were fighting, but not as much as we thought they were. They were, they were, they
0: were instigating, instigated, it, yeah.
1: instigating it. And Peter told us that, I remember this clearly, they used to, when we weren't looking, we had spaghetti, they would stuff their mouth with spaghetti and try to chew it all up before we got back to the table. And I remember one time we came in and Leah had spaghetti dripping out of her mouth and she's laughing like crazy. And Peter was laughing too. And we didn't, we had no idea why until fairly recently when Peter told us the story. Peter was in Cub Scouts and we went to a Cub Scout outing at a skating rink. And Leah was tiny, she was like two and a half or three. And she had the Fisher Price roller skates where the wheels just went one way. And I was in the middle, trying to stay out of traffic, holding her hand. And at one point, she, went like she dropped my hand and took off. And she just skated on her own, held her own, with all those Cub Scouts. Skated for however, two or three hours, all by herself. Leah was also an animal lover. She had several cats, and she had um, we had a couple dogs. One of them was hers, and they both slept with her and. After she died, they still both slept in her room for a while before we took the room apart. So they would go and sleep in the room because it was as if they were wondering where she was. She always wanted to stay after school to hang out with with her friends, But, but she really hated school. She hated the school part of it. She loved the social part of it, but she was really anxious. Although she was looking forward to going to college, but it was in... Fashion design, she really, um, e- e- even though she got fairly good grades, and she could get good grades, she didn't like school. Rather than doing things after school, she went out and got a job. So she worked at a, at a very young age at um, Golden Corral, and at an ice
0: cream place. She had uh, an affinity for ice cream uh, that I think she inherited from me. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Her birthday cake was always an ice cream cake. Everybody had their choice of cake, and she always chose an ice cream cake. So I had a specific cake that I would make with four different layers of ice cream. We would have game nights. They would always be met with. But after we got into it, everybody, everybody enjoyed them. Everybody, everybody um, had a night to choose a game. We also started family meetings, and everybody had a chance to run a meeting. So that was I thought that was It's
2: a great idea. a good
1: experience for them uh, for both Peter and Leah. and us. we got to know more about, about them. We In Chicago, we loved to go to the museums, and at that age, they were still pretty, didn't, didn't complain too much. There was a children's museum that I used to take Peter and Leah to in Chicago that was free. We took the IC train downtown. And that was free for them. And then we'd go by the lakes. So we like going to the lake in Chicago, um, going to the Children's Museum. Also the zoo. We love to go to the zoo no matter where we lived.
0: I think one of our favorite adventures as a young family, though, was walking to the ice cream store and getting ice cream and then walking back. And inevitably, as little kids, you know, the ice cream would be melting and dripping down your hands. And Leah was always pretty particular about Make, capturing every last drop. She was so she was she uh, <laughs> would would not waste her ice cream.
1: She would not, and then we would go to the
0: park. Right, go to the park and play in the swings and another favorite activity.
2: Do you remember her favorite flavor?
1: Uh, blue moon.
2: What's blue moon? It's this
1: it's, oh, or bubblegum. Both. Yeah, it was. It was, well, I don't even know what it is.
2: Food coloring? Yeah, it I'm blue. sure. Yeah. It,
1: it made her mouth blue. That was when she was, I don't
0: know, a preteen.
1: Preteen. We used to vacation in, in Ludington, Michigan, from the time our kids were two ish up until the time we moved away from Chicago. And it, it was just, it was a great week on a lake, just swimming and fishing and relaxing. And this ice cream place was one of the. Places we have to have to go to at least once during the week, and I'll let you tell the pig
0: story. We had a uh, a feast, and the family that owned the cottage up there had a uh, rented a, a big grill and uh, got a suckling pig. Uh, so here we were out there roasting this thing all day long, getting you know getting it uh, just right. Of course, it was an entire pig, so the kids were. Um, just like amazed that uh, there's this pig with an apple in its mouth just staring uh, out uh, and that became a game of uh, pig on a stick and chasing each other around the uh, the yard and it just happened to be uh, another one of those memories that we have pictures family pictures of uh, the kids with the you know the pig uh, and the
1: pig's head after it was cooked right and it was usually 4th of July when we went up there, so we would do fireworks off the off the pier.
0: Right. Well, we did go to Disney World one year. That was about the time when uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids oh, yeah. was uh, big. We have photos of them on the bee that was in the movie, and uh, they played the flight in the background while they were...
1: Well, the funny story about that is that... I think they were like nine and seven. Peter was nine, and Leah was seven. And Leah was holding onto the bee and just laughing hysterically. And Peter was, I said, "Leah, you're supposed to be acting scared," <laughs> and she was just laughing hysterically. He's trying to a- a- act scared, and he's just shaking his head because Leah was just wasn't quite getting it, but she was having fun, and the pictures yeah. are hysterical.
2: In high school, Leah is a senior, and she's a senior. Gets into a a car crash. Mm -hmm. Um, What 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 happened?
1: Um, She was on her way to school, and um, I don't know exactly what happened, but she hit the only tree in the middle of a cornfield, and um, she had massive brain injuries. And I was I was at work. Dan was at work, and (laughs) the campus police came into my office, and asked me if I was Nancy Loeffler, and they, I said yes, (laughs) they escorted me out to the car and said, we're taking you to the hospital because there's been an accident. And I didn't know what happened, and they wouldn't tell me. When we got to the hospital, we found out that Leah had been in in the accident, um, was in surgery at the time. We still really didn't know anything. You know, her, her principal was there, her counselor was there. It was just, it was just kind of surreal Peter was in college he was 20 so we called him and he made plans to come to the hospital and when she came out of surgery the surgeon said there, there was not um, not a very good chance of her lasting the weekend and it was it was she was um, they put her in a coma a medically induced coma because she had swelling brain swelling so we really never had a chance to talk with her. We talked to her, but there was never any uh, communication. Her friends started coming, and Peter arrived with some friends to help support him.
0: But at the time, they weren't allowed into the room. It was family only. We had a waiting room, Nancy and myself, and probably a dozen or more of her classmates. Yeah. And as time progressed...
1: For the most part, we stayed there, but one night we did go home just to... She had showed a, an, an improvement, a slight improvement, and Peter decided to stay with her. We went home. and
0: The next morning, we drove into the hospital parking garage and um, went up uh, two or three levels and uh, parked the car, started making our way toward the, uh, the stairwell, and uh, opened the door into the stairwell, and there was this little sparrow. Inside the stairwell uh, and uh, was trapped and obviously was fluttering about in some distress. And uh, I stood there holding open the door, coaxing the the sparrow to to fly and uh, escape. And then it kind of hit me. It was a symbol for what was coming.
2: And you knew. that was
1: the first time we each knew we didn't verbalize it to each other but we each knew that that what we were going to be asked to ultimately do in the next we didn't know when but that that we both knew that Leah wasn't going to be coming back to us at that point
2: so what's going through your head like when you get to to see her and you know you yeah at some point you started to think like okay this you know she might not come back from this.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I did was, um, I I told her that more than, more than anything, I wanted her to come back to us, but that if she, if that wasn't what she needed to do, that she, she was free to do what she needed to do. And that was, that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. There had been no brain activity for whatever amount of time, because she did, Another thing that was very difficult was making the decision to have her be an organ donor. So because of that, they couldn't take her off of life support. So it was that we had to declare her dead. We had to allow them to declare her dead, but still keep her her organs viable. So that was a little surreal too. However, when Dan took her for her driver's license, she was adamant about being an organ donor. So we wanted to honor her wishes.
0: Uh, We invited her classmates who were still in the waiting room to join us and um, to say their goodbyes. We felt that really the dawning of some of the grief work that we do um, started that day when um, we realized that these kids had no idea or appreciation of what was happening and they needed to have that to say those goodbyes.
1: It wasn't just her friends. It was some of our friends were there, too. And we asked whoever wanted to go in. You know, we, we gave everybody the opportunity, and everybody everybody said yes. So there was um, ones and twos. Some some people wanted to be there, go in alone, and some people wanted someone to come in, in with them. But it was an important part for, I think, for them, but certainly for us, too, at some level. I don't know. I don't think at the time we knew.
2: What about you guys, though? Like, how did you... How did you get a chance to grieve? I mean, how? Like, how does that? How does yeah. that work for you?
1: Yeah, it. Um, certainly, we we each had to do it in our own individual ways. What I did was I turned to a practice that was already a part of my life at the time. Someone that I was working with, and it was a practice that was. It's a present moment awareness practice and
2: what does that mean what's the what, yeah what means?
1: is that what does that mean it means that i was at, i was able to be with the pain of losing leah without the stories that my head wanted to spin about it so i could i could and it was it's a heart-centered practice and i was able to bring my feelings into my heart and eventually i learned how to let my heart hold those feelings and then transmute them and as I started to process my grief this way, I was just amazed at, at how powerful it was and how whenever I was able to be with my feelings in my heart, that I would always receive blessings and grace. And it, it, it happened every single time. And that was like the the transmutation of, that, of, that, of those feelings. And that doesn't mean that I still don't... I mean, it, it, this has been an ongoing thing. And the more that I... Practiced it, the deeper I unraveled the feelings, and because it was just so powerful, I became a Samyama practitioner in I think two thousand nine, and that's what I primarily use 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 with my own grief clients today, along with a few other things that I've learned along the way. But that's the foundation of, of my work because I, it, it's a very intuitive way of working, and the present moment holds everything that that, that we need. So. It's not just good for grief, it's really a a daily life resource, and it's good for grief or other traumatic experiences. Shortly after Leah died, and when I say shortly, it it was probably about a week, I heard two things. What I mean by that is they were intuitive hits. One was, losing Leah is too high a price to pay to not live the life I was meant to live. And the second is that everything I had done up until that point had prepared me for what was coming next. So while there were times when I couldn't function, I didn't want to function, I didn't know how I was going to get from one moment to the next, those two things just, just kept urging me forward. And because of that, I didn't turn to any quote-unquote traditional method of meeting grief because I've always been someone who needs to do things my own way. Maybe that's really I got it. It was pretty. It was. It was. It was almost right away. And I was. I was writing. Wasn't writing my book yet, but I was. I was writing. And what I realized I was doing. I didn't know it at the time. Is I was. I was creating the way I was going to be working with clients, but yeah. I was doing it for myself first. It's a very unique way of walking through grief.
2: And what about you, Dan? So. 2000. Leah dies. Nancy's going through her grief process. Did you? Were you on a similar path? Were you different? Like, how did? How, how did you grieve? Yeah, we uh, we both had to do it our
0: own way, and and initially it was uh, very much separate. Yeah. To hear Nancy talk about um but her process, but uh, the immediate feelings of devastation and disbelief. And uh, sorrow for all the things that might have been or or could have been, Um, you know, the loss of those dreams was just devastating. And uh, we don't do well as a society dealing with grief. And I think I I followed what I had observed and um, I, I packed it away. I couldn't deal with the feelings initially, just compartmentalized it put it up on the shelf and told myself that when I had time I was gonna, you know, work through this. But I had to get back to work. I had to, you know, I had things to do. And I realized very quickly that this had changed my life so profoundly that the importance of the work that I was doing just paled, you know, comparison with the enormity of the feelings and emotions. So I couldn't. I couldn't function. I, you know, I. It came to a point where the sadness and you know the, that sense of loss became so dramatic that the started coming out in you know inappropriate ways. And I was angry. I was you um, know couldn't tolerate. Couldn't focus on uh, on the job. And I knew that I needed to to do something. And I was fortunate enough to. Uh, find someone that I could work with um, uh, one-on-one in therapy and um, learned that therapy for the most part was uh, the value it gave to me was to be able to begin speaking about the way I was feeling because and since then I've kind of come up with the idea for um, working with men who have also experienced loss in their lives that uh, men's feelings are buried treasures and that uh, we don't take the time often enough to look at the things that have happened in the course of our life to appreciate that those experiences got us to where we are today. We have the opportunity to um, look at the good things and the bad things uh, and how they've shaped us and you know what what can we do with it so, Going through the therapy was an important first step for me and it became the beginning of where we began to recognize that we needed to do this work on our own and get to a point where we could then support one another as as we stumbled through this new landscape without without our daughter because things things had changed our relationship with our Families had changed. Relationship with our church community had changed. We became, oh, there's that couple that had lost their daughter. Mm. The way we we, we were perceived and the way we perceived each other, you know, had to go through um, a transition, you know, where um, this new state kind of um, evolved for us. And eventually we were able to give each other support. And make the decision that you know this this is what we were being called to do. The statistics are pretty devastating for a, a family or a couple who have lost a child. the I don't know what the latest statistic is, but it was over fifty percent of the families did not remain together and uh, that there was blame and there was you know conflict as a result.
1: Well, the other thing that. The loss of a child does is is illuminates any other cracks that are already in the marriage, right? And that did that for us as well. Yeah. So we had a choice to make. We could either choose to meet that and address that and work on that, or not. It would have been real easy not to. would I think it would have been easier not to. It would have been certainly would have been easier not to um, meet our grief because. Meeting the grief meant that we needed to feel those feelings and it's 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 isolating too because people don't want to they don't want to consider that that might happen to their children so that it's easier for them to not not engage not engage that, that, that wasn't everybody but certainly it was some people and I, I, I understand that but it, it was isolating it, and, and sometimes it was self-isolating because. I, I couldn't figure out I couldn't figure out how people could look at me and not know what was going on inside because it was just so broken but you can't I mean that, that, that you know it's not something that you can necessarily see and it's not just the the death of, of our child was the obvious thing that happened but there's so many other losses that come with that and you don't realize that at the time like the the loss of, um, she, she didn't graduate. We, we went to a graduation ceremony because they honored her, which was another really difficult thing to do. But the loss of, um, having an adult relationship with her, or being grandparents to her children, or walking her down the aisle if she chose to get married. And this, it just goes on and on and on. And you don't realize them until they come and smack you up and upside the head. And it's like, ah.
0: Another one. And those moments, they certainly don't come as frequently as, as they did, you know, those initial years. But it wasn't uh, until last year, 16 years after the fact, that we put up a Christmas tree. Because Christmas was one of Leah's favorite holidays. And we still couldn't take out all the decorations. There were, there was the, the Christmas village that was Leah's to always set up and, you know, Put the people here, and you know the change him. Yeah, she, yeah, she, she had fun playing with that, and uh, it was just still too difficult to do. And so you give yourself permission to not celebrate the way you used to, and to create new traditions and to find joy in other other ways. Because you know we certainly have found joy in our lives again. The Sad recognition that some people never recover and don't know how to get past a loss really gave us a a focus when um, uh, we chose the concept of changing the conversation around grief and being able to uh, talk about it with the hope that it it helps others. Yeah,
1: and it's really giving people permission to talk about the uncomfortable things and, and teaching them how to be with the uncomfortable feelings because we don't like to be uncomfortable you know, we like, as Dan was saying he wanted to put them away and hope that if he kept them up there long enough they would go away And they don't, they just get louder
2: it's been 18 years mm-hmm. um, I guess when was the, the hardest year and like when did it start to get easier, or has it has it gotten easier?
1: Yeah, the the hardest years were the first ones, and I don't know if there was a a specific year when there was when things started getting easier. I, I, I don't. Gradually, they they did. It's always difficult around the the, the anniversary, um, and I remember ten years was excruciatingly painful. But it, it, it's not like it's constant, like it was in the first—I don't know—five or six or seven or eight years. You know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's certainly the first five years were continual. It, it was always there. I, I never like to give a time because it's different for everybody, and. I don't want to say it took me three years and have someone say, "Oh, it's five years," and I'm still I'm still here because it's different for everybody. And I'm not I'm not saying it was three years. I just gave that as an example. But it, it, I it can still be taken back to that moment even today. I can still have those same feelings. They don't last as long. I move through them. I've learned how to move through them. I guess that that's the. That's that's the difference, and I'm not sure if that answered your question, uh, because that's that's always one that I never like to answer, saying in a definitive, it was this many years,
0: and yeah, I like to put it in in the context of uh, you know the stories and the occurrences that still happen. You know, this past week we had mm-hmm. Leah show up in our lives in unexpected and. Ways that uh, can kind of make me smile now. We were going out the door for a meeting on Saturday, and I wanted to grab a notebook. And I went to my shelf, and I pulled up up this little pocket notebook and opened it up. It happened to be a notebook that Leah had written in. And, uh, you know, we still find these reminders 18 years later. And there was a time when, you know, we consciously thought, there's going to be a time when there's going to be nothing that Leah has touched that is in our immediate life. And yet, you know, here's one that i pulled off the shelf and, um, it made me smile. I can't tell you when those moments, you know, change from sadness to give me a cause to smile, but those tender moments uh, that, um, bring her to mind, and fill your heart with a memory that you know initially might, might have um, been a, a sad moment, and uh, can cause you to smile and, and you know, think about her in, in a different way.
1: I, mean, I think that's one of the the gifts of meeting grief in this way, because it does change from sadness to joy, or or, or, or at least a memory that makes you smile, or the gift definitely is appreciating life in a different way, a change in perspective. The things that used to be big traumatic problems are just not anymore.
0: Yeah, they seem to lose their immediacy. The drama that people attach to some things I was able to let go of because there was no drama that was going to be as impactful as what I had just gone through, losing my daughter. So, it it just gives you a whole different
2: way of looking at things. You guys mentioned uh, it's difficult, the anniversary of her her death. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you guys do on that day and what do you do on, on her birthday?
1: Yeah, different things. It depends on the year. If if it's, um, her birthday is, is April 28th, and sometimes we'll have ice cream. <laughs> well, we, not sometimes, we always have ice cream. We, we always celebrate her birthday, and on, on the anniversary, we, we usually just take some quiet time. This past year, we went to the Arboretum, and they had a night in the garden, and it was just, that just seemed like, the right thing to do this year so it, it, it depends on the year it depends where we feel differently every year so we just ask ourselves what we need that particular year and we'll do that
2: um you, you hear that you know the, the worst pain you can experience is you know the loss of a, a child um you know what and there's i'm sure there's a lot of different pieces of advice that you can give to people that are going through this is there any one in particular that could help somebody going through this
1: don't be afraid of the feelings. It's the feelings, as difficult as they are, beginning to learn how to be with the uncomfortable feelings is a way through. And and also recognizing how you grieve. Some people want to talk about their loved one, want to talk about their child, and, and some don't. And sometimes it changes. Honor where you are t- today and be okay with the way that you grieve because everybody grieves in their own unique way and there's no right way or wrong way to, to, grieve.
0: I think for me, the one realization through some of the work that I've done is that we experience grief throughout our lives. We may not recognize it as grief. It could be certainly early on. It may be a loss of a pet. You know, for me, one of the things that I remember was, um, uh, Uh, one of the little league games that my team lost and didn't recognize that sadness. And it was kind of a a moment for me where things changed. These things occur during your life. And when a big loss occurs, uh, if you've learned things from the early grief, they can help you to get through the big griefs that, uh, that occur. And that You will get through it. It'll be hard, but the lessons that you pick up along the way, the people that are there to support you, and when you need it, ask for help. Yeah, and
1: We've all heard that time heals all wounds, but it's what you do with that time, not just the time without doing something, reaching out, asking for help.
2: Nancy, I think in your blog, I think you call it the great mystery. Is that like the the afterlife? Is that...
1: Just everything is is a great mystery. Yeah, you know, we we don't know. Certainly, the the afterlife is, is is a great mystery, but life as well. You know, I, I it's a mystery to me how I got from right after Leah died to where I am now. You know, it, it's it's um it's it's just trusting in the unknown, and the the unknown is is, is the mystery. We we think we're in control of everything, but we're not.
2: Now, um, do you guys talk to Leah? And what do you say if you? I don't know if you want to care to share that.
1: Um, yeah, I I, I talk to her. Um, i I'll, I'll um sometimes I'll ask her questions. or Sometimes I'll just um ask her if
0: she's if she's around.
1: <laughs> sometimes I just tell her about my day.
0: Uh, sometimes I just tell her I miss her. Yeah, sometimes um, we share a song together. Something will come on that will remind me of her, and um, I'll be thinking of her. One of the early moments when I was definitely aware of uh, Leah was uh, when we were still living in Maryland. When she was a little girl, she couldn't quite say squirrel. She called them quirlos. I was going down in the yard to do something. We had almost an acre of land, and toward the back it was kind of wooded. As I walked down the hill, came by this little tree. And I was thinking of her and, you know, missing her. And it was just really one of those um, moments when I had her really firmly in my head. And out of this tree, this little baby squirrel plopped right down in front of me. And it shook itself. And it looked up at me. And I looked down at it. And off it scampered. And I thought, "There's my little Quirlo." <laughs> she came to visit me, and uh, yeah, just out of the blue like that. Those moments are precious, and and they continue to happen. And the synchronicities that keep you in touch with the ones that you've you've uh, loved and lost can bring a smile to your face. And it's it's fun to tell the stories. I used to um,
1: right after shortly after Leah died, I started having this vision that began to, I would have it like, right before I woke up, I was still kind of half asleep, but I was in that in-between state, and and it was a vision of a tropical place. I would see i would see this tropical, and it was like in black and white. But then I started seeing Leah's profile in it. And so I would, if, if, I, if I opened my eyes too quickly, it would go away. So I would get real, real good at just staying in that place, and i've I've had this vision. I used to have it more often, but I still every so often have it. But in December, we were in Costa Rica, and we came around this bend and this on this walk we were on, and all of a sudden I saw the exact same tropical scene that was in my vision. And it was just it just I just got chills. I was like, I said, Dan, I, I don't even know what I said to you, but it was like, I, I think I just said. There it is, and that was one of those moments too.
2: Yeah, it's like you're supposed to be there. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's like uh, signposts uh, on our journey. You're meant to be here, and yeah. you know this is you're on the right path. It does feel good to talk about her and share stories, and um, and call her to the room, and to be here with us.
1: It certainly isn't the path that we expected to be on or would have chosen, but we said yes to the path that we are on.
2: Nancy's present moment awareness practice is called Samyama, and she works one on one with people who are grieving. She wrote a book called The Alchemy of Grief, Your Journey to Wholeness about Her Loss and Helping Others Grieve. That's available on Amazon or Dan and Nancy's website, beingwithgrief.com, and at Raleigh local bookstores, such as Quail Ridge Books. And depending on when you listen to this episode, her companion journal is out now as well, so check that out. Dan has found a practice using the grief recovery method and has become a grief recovery specialist. This grief recovery is typically done in groups and it's mostly with men because we're uncomfortable sharing and need to learn how to grieve and, and usually we're pretty terrible with feelings. Thank you, Dan and Nancy, for sharing your journey. And thank you for listening to the Beyond the Obituary podcast from Renaissance Funeral Home in Raleigh, North Carolina. I actually met Dan and Nancy at a monthly meetup group at the Renaissance called Death Cafe, where anybody can come and talk about their feelings on death, grief, afterlife, burial, all in a comfortable, no judgment zone. I'll be sure to put information about the next meetings in the show notes. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jason Gilligan, for Happy Hippo Digital, If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Share or tell a friend, too. Those are the best ways to get the word out there about this show. Until next time, I'm Jason Gilligan, and you've been listening to Beyond the Obituary.